Coronavirus NZ, a daily stuff podcast. So when we get to level two, are you going to keep on giving the East Coast wave at it? Oh, maybe. I've got a bit of a crick in my neck, actually. What about the handshake, the hongi, the hug, or even the elbow bump like Ashley Bloomfield says he's going to stick with? Oh, I don't know. I've actually grown quite attached to the virtual hug. Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Thursday the 7th of May. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. We bring you the main headlines, some of the more unusual and musical things about life under lockdown, and then we take a closer look at something that takes our fancy. Today's all about level two, and we'll get to that. But first, llamas. What? Yeah, so according to the New York Times, lab experiments in Belgium have shown that antibodies from a llama neutralise the coronavirus. Almost as thrillingly, I learned that the llama's name is Winter. Oh, Winter, why didn't you say? Yeah, so Winter's antibodies have proved effective against SARS and MERS viruses in the past. The scientists hope to develop their work to produce a short-term protection against coronavirus. The idea is that you figure out a way of injecting the antibodies into someone to provide an immediate weapon for the immune system, but it won't last for more than a month or so. Some of these fancy overseas animals are really impressive, eh? Here in Marangi Bay, I've got a dog who pees on the floor each morning before we get up. Yeah, and I've got two goldfish called Donald and Harry. Not sure they'll be much help. Right. Later on the show, we talk to Stuff Business journalist Tom Pullistracker, who explains how the economy has been bent out of shape and what announcement the government has planned for next week to help bang out the dings. Plus, we uncover Tom's rock star backstory. But first, what's happened today? Just one new case today, and it's connected to the Matamata cluster. Ashley Bloomfield said all cases discovered this week were linked with other known cases, which is a good thing. He said that this is exactly where we want to be as we consider moving to alert level two. Meanwhile, Ashley Bloomfield says he's not keen on the idea of compulsory face masks. There have been some calls for the use of masks in public to be part of the move to level two, but a Ministry of Health review says the evidence doesn't support that. They will, however, be putting out advice for people who choose to wear masks about how to do so safely and how to avoid the risk of the masks themselves becoming a source of infection. And I guess that's one of the reasons why it's not being recommended. And the government will pour $250,000 into funding an urgent trial of a merino wool armband that automatically takes the wearer's temperature every six minutes. The technology could be a key tool for containing COVID-19. Chances are, before coronavirus came along, you're likely to have never heard of the Rosewood Rest Home and Hospitals. Now it's in the news nearly every day, synonymous with the disease. As we speak on Thursday morning, there have been 12 deaths associated with the cluster centred at the facility, which is in Christchurch. Staff investigative reporter Martin Van Bainen has been looking into the slow-moving tragedy that is Rosewood. Welcome, Martin. Good morning. Tell us a little bit about the place. We've heard so much about it, but I I know almost nothing about what it's like. Can you describe it a little for us? Uh, Well, actually, I've never visited the the home due to the lockdown, but it's a 64-bed facility. It's been going for a number of of decades, uh, owned by the same people for that time. And from what I've seen online, it, it looks perfectly pleasant. It's got a nice garden. There's a nice deck, a nice sunny deck where people have um, barbecues. And the staff is, a, is an international staff of, that speak about 15 languages. And generally speaking, it, it looks like a fairly run, well-run facility. People who've had family members there speak highly of it or seem to think that it was a good place. 
They certainly do, and and we can only go on what the people that are, that approached us to say nice things about the rest home. But normally, in a story like this, if there were real concerns, you'd expect to hear from people, even anonymously. We didn't hear, not a scare of that sort of stuff came through. So that made that makes you think, yes, this was probably as good a rest home as as they get. So Friday, April the third, ten days after New Zealand went into lockdown, what happened? Well, on April the 3rd, that was uh, the first case of COVID-19 was detected in, in the institution. And of course, that was uh, that, that sent all the alarm bells ringing and very serious given that it was within a very vulnerable part of the rest home because that was it was within the dementia unit. The patients there or the residents there often, you know, very frail, high needs and obviously vulnerable to infection. Do we know how it got in there? No, there are rumours. The most likely way it got in was through a staff member who may have um, returned from overseas and been asymptomatic. But again, we, we, that could be that could be shown to be completely wrong. And also, it, the cause may never be known. I mean, you're looking at a rest home where there were visitors, family visitors, podiatrists would would visit, a, a hairdresser would visit, the residents would go out on on outings. There are so many possibilities. It might be too difficult just to drill down into exactly what caused it. Right. So these people obviously are all elderly. Some are already pretty unwell or just very frail, as you said. So even before COVID came along, at this sort of place, they're always on the lookout for infectious diseases, right? Yes, they are. They're required to have a a fairly robust uh, infection control protocol, and that's inspected each year by an audit. In the last audit, the rest home came through with flying colours. So uh, the rest home itself seemed to be very conscious of that, and, and it was inspected anyway. But again, you know, it's very easy to look great on the day you're inspected and also a documented policy doesn't mean to say that it's always carried out and don't forget these people were very high needs and as one um, carer told me it's almost impossible to change your personal protective equipment between each patient. The other issue here I think also was that although the rooms had an ensuite the ensuite was shared with the neighbouring room. So you can see how if you're showering patients, you might just leave all your gear on and, and just and then, you know, do one and then do the other. So just from a practical point of view, you can see how it would be very easy not to follow the protocols to the letter. Overseas, there have been horrifying reports about death rates in rest homes, you know, many situations much worse than Rosewood. So we got a fair amount of warning that these were extremely high-risk places for COVID. So did New Zealand fail to learn from the lessons about what was happening with COVID-19? No, I don't think it did. I think the rest homes were quite proactive about this. And well before the lockdown, they had put in measures in place to stop uh, visitors coming in and various other things to ensure that um, there was some protection around their their residents. If you look at New Zealand as a whole, I mean, there are, I think there are 675 rest homes that belong to the to the Aged Care Association. Very few of them have actually had a COVID infection. Yeah, I'm not sure New Zealand dropped the ball on this one in terms of its elderly resident elderly um, population. Gosh, the overwhelming sense is just what a tragedy. You know, your story came out at the weekend when the death toll was at Rosewood was 10. As we record this, it's reached 12. Where's it going to end? 
Hard to say. The death rate has certainly slowed down. Uh, we did talk to a nurse who was looking after the residents who went to Burwood. Essentially, they emptied the dementia wing at Rosewood and transferred the patients to to Burwood so they could be looked after in a, in a sort of a more of a uh, more contained area. And also, there wasn't a lot of choice because most of the Rosewood staff had gone to self self isolation. So, a nurse that was looking after the the patients at Burwood said no one would get out alive, but I'm not sure that's true. There is talk now of some of the remaining patients going back to Rosewood. So, um, yeah, we'll have to see about that. But I'm sure it's on the cards that there'll be more deaths due to the Rosewood infection. Thanks so much for joining us, Martin Van Bainham. You're welcome. My pleasure. So today we're all learning what it's going to mean to be living at level two. Uh so let's see, what does the COVID-19.govt.nz site say about our new lives? Well, yeah, just remember, this is just the warm-up. We're not actually into level two yet. It's going to be next week at the earliest, and we won't even know the date until after Monday's cabinet meeting. Anyway, some stuff's going to be the same. Keep your distance, sneeze into your elbows, stay home if you're sick, but there's much more that will change. Yeah, so all businesses can reopen along with schools. You can travel between regions. You can see friends. So we can go to museums and food courts and markets and the gym and weddings and funerals and birthdays. They're all back on. Church is okay. Boating is okay. Duck shooting is okay. Oh, yeah, that's interesting because I heard that there was big lobbying from the duck community, but it's obviously failed. Clearly. Yeah, sources say there were too many quacks and divisions between the various lobby groups. Uh, for this next bit, we cross to the sports desk. Over to Eugene. Thanks, Adam. Uh, professional sport is back in some senses. So Super Rugby, well, they're calling it Super Rugby, but I don't think they're going to be flying to Australia and South Africa. So I presume it's going to be more of a domestic competition. That's back on. The ANZ Premiership Netball competition, that's going to be back on, but no crowds. So no crowds, does that mean no spectators at all? Well, on TV, but not at the grounds, no. Right. Uh, so yeah, life will be sort of back to normal, but even those things that are normal again are going to be pretty weird. So when you're out buying stuff and seeing friends and shooting ducks and being at the church, there's loads of new rules. Yeah, so indoor and outdoor gatherings are limited to 100 people, which is interesting because remember there was a very brief time that we were at level two before we went sort of straight into level three and then immediately up to level four. Outdoor gatherings then was 200. So there would have been a bunch of event organisers, I imagine, looking ahead to level two, maybe planning on going ahead with things that they're going to have to scale back now or, or rethink. What about restaurants? I quite like restaurants, especially when someone else is paying. Yeah, well, the Prime Minister has said the three S's rule is going to apply. Seated, separated, and use a single server. I can immediately see a problem. Well, that sounds quite reasonable. So seated means that you're not roaming around mixing with people up at the counter. Yeah, yeah. Separated means the tables can't be too close, so you've got some social distancing away from your crowd of friends. Uh-huh. And uh, single server means that there'll only be one staff member who waits on you. You won't have lots of different staff members to reduce the sort of cross-contamination, I guess. So yeah. what's the problem? Well, she said it's the three S's rule. It's four S's. Seated, separated, single server. It's four S's. Take it to the ombudsman. I might just do that. On the distancing, basically it's two metres when you're out in public, but one metre in situations where they can trace who you've been in contact with. The rider with that is businesses are going to have to have a system where they can keep track of customers so they know who's in the cafe when and all that sort of stuff. Two metres for strangers, one metre for people who you're getting closer to, but 
even one meter is going to be really awkward if you're cutting hair or giving massages or trimming nostril hairs. I mean, you, you've got to get close. Sorry, just a quick point. Who trims your nostril hairs, Adam? No one. It was just a hypothetical, but the point remains. Okay. I don't think there's a convincing answer. But anyway, look, there are going to be different rules. So barbers and hairdressers and so on are going to have to wear PPE. So basically your barber's going to be in a hazmat suit, which if they're doing in nostril hairs, I'd suggest anyway. One last thing. Schools are back open, but there's every chance that individual schools could close down for a little while. If there's a case found in a school, there'll be a 14-day quarantine. And that's what the situation was before we went into full lockdown. Yeah, there was that school in Dunedin, wasn't there? And what about contact tracing? I don't see anything about a Bluetooth app. WTF? And I don't mean where's the flower. Right, Woba. Yeah, no talk of an app. But there are various things that are meant to make contact tracing easier if and when there's an outbreak. So the Prime Minister said that they're working on something like a QR code system that they're going to offer to businesses to keep a record of customer movements. So I guess that's something like you scan a QR code when you arrive and leave a place and then they've got that record. Meanwhile, individuals are basically being asked to make an effort to keep track of where they've been and who they've met. I'm not really looking forward to that, but I really struggle to remember what I've had for breakfast on any given day, let alone who I met five days ago or where I was. Well, just keep a diary. Really? Who do you think I am? Samuel Pepys? Who? Samuel Pepys. You know. No. He's just the most famous diarist in history. Don't you mean Anne Frank? Okay, Samuel Pepys is the most famous diarist in the English language. What about Adrian Mole? Okay, possibly second to Adrian Mole, but Samuel Pepys, English MP, naval official, adulterer, lived in London, kept a diary from 1660 to 69, wrote about the Great Plague of London, the Great Fire of London, and all the affairs he had with his servants and various actresses. Oh, that's Samuel Pepys. Yeah, that's Samuel Pepys. Anyway, Samuel Pepys didn't have a Bluetooth app because it was the 1600s. But we live in 2020, so I want a Bluetooth app. I suppose you could always just turn on the location record on Google Maps in the meantime. That is a good idea. I may just do that. I mean, a giant American tech company wouldn't ever do anything dodgy with my data, would they? Nah, you'd be absolutely fine. Anyway, email inbox. Right, we've heard from Nicola Gainsford, who said that she enjoys our podcast and has a great laugh every day. That'll be your Dalmatian dog joke from yesterday, Adam. Mm, That was a cracker. I'd like another bad dad joke possible if you've got one. Uh, Just be patient. Anyway, Nicola writes, she's got a question, which she said is not lighthearted in any way. She wants to know, why don't we just test everybody in the country? She really wants to see her daughter and grandchildren and sister, but she's worried. And she writes, I certainly don't want to see my family if I'm going to give them the virus, and I don't want to catch it either. I really think we need wholesale testing. And before I go anywhere, I want to test, symptoms or not. I really think you could investigate this, even though it's not exactly a WTF. I think it's a WTF of another sort, and I'm sure you know what I mean. Well, yes, we do know what you mean, Nicola. It's a good question. I'll hand it over to Adam for this one, because I think he's been doing some calculations. Yeah, so without talking to anyone who's actually qualified to comment on this, I think it probably comes down to maths. So there have been 168,023 tests done so far in total. That's roughly one for every 30 New Zealanders. Now, New Zealand's population is roughly 4.9 million. If you take away those who have already been tested, that leaves about 4.7 million people still to be tested. Now, how fast can we test people? Yesterday, we had a record number of tests processed of 7,323. 
If we tested absolutely everyone in the country at that rate, it would take 641 days. Now the problem there is that 641 days is more than enough time for someone who's tested negative early on to have gone and caught it, making their early test not very meaningful. I'm sure we could be testing a bit faster than 7,323 per day, but probably not fast enough that we can hit the whole population in a short enough time frame for it to be useful. So for now, I guess, the approach is to keep testing in a much more targeted way. And remember, they have expanded the criteria for testing. So they're saying, even if you've just got a runny nose, go and get a test. Anyway, if an actual epidemiologist has a better answer to this, please drop us a line at viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Plague playlist. So when we first started talking about level two earlier today, I was struck by a bolt of inspiration for the plague playlist. Level 42. What are you talking about? Level 2, level 42, kind of rhymes. Level 42 is a band. They make music. Yeah, just like imagine if we were at level 42. That's 40 levels beyond. Imagine that. What would it be like? You wouldn't be allowed out of bed, let alone your house. You wouldn't even be allowed to leave your own pants. (laughs) Okay, forget level 42. Okay, let's keep it simple. Let's go back to our old friend, the Kifnis from South Africa who did that excellent Chumbawamba cover we played a little way back. Anyway, today we have his rendition of Yesterday by the Beatles. Lockdown, a cappella version. Yesterday, COVID-19 seems so far away Now it looks as though it's here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday Suddenly I'm spending three whole weeks in quarantine. Is this virus taking over me? Oh, yesterday. What did the left eye say to the right eye? I don't know. What did the left eye say to the right eye? Between us, something smells. Ever since lockdown began, we've been aware that the government's making a trade off, saving lives from the virus versus damaging the economy. And yes, that gets really complicated really fast because in the medium and long term, economic damage itself leads pretty directly to poverty, social harm, mental health issues, and at some point, other lives lost. But we wanted to step back a bit and look at some of the basics, like just how much economic damage has there been and what can be done to mitigate the damage and how long will it take and so on. So someone who's got a handle on all of these things is Tom Polistreka, a stuff business journalist who's been closely following the economic story of COVID-19. So Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. So look, every summer over Christmas, a large chunk of New Zealand just stops working for weeks on end and the economy doesn't break in two. So I know this is probably a kind of dumb question, but can you explain why it's been so extremely damaging to shut down New Zealand's economy or slow it right down for the four to six weeks of, of lockdown. What What's bending? What's breaking? Well, you're right. I mean, we're used, many of us, to, to taking sort of four weeks of annual leave every year and everything seems to truck along okay with the economy. Uh, I guess, you know, that difference between what's happened now and those kind of seasonal breaks is that, well, a lot of people do work over Christmas and those holiday seasons and it's the time when people tend to go out and spend money in different ways so, you know, through holidays and Christmas sales and so on. So a lot of spending still happens in the economy but in different places. But the, I mean, the key thing there is that I, I guess firms budget for that, those sort of four weeks of annual leave. It, it's built into their planning and, and, and sometimes that they expect. But this event has really been like half or more of the, the whole country or indeed 
so the whole world really suddenly taking an unplanned two-month holiday. And that, that's not something that many businesses have been able to easily plan for. We see lots of numbers in terms of how we quantify the damage that's already occurred. What do you think the best numbers are to look at? I think everybody's guessing, really, uh, because aside from the sort of immediate uh, damage that's been caused from from the lockdown and and the sort of lost productivity, there's also that much bigger concern about the longer term and the loss of key sectors of the economy, international tourism, international education, and the impact of the global downturn in overseas markets as well on on other export industries. So uh, that's a a sort of bigger impact, really, than I think the, the lockdown itself. And those things are very difficult to predict are we going to see some sort of fortress New Zealand take shape uh, where you, you know the borders are, are really effectively closed for a very long period of time what's going to happen overseas are they are they going to open up and at what sort of speeds so uh, everybody's guessing at the moment and and, and forecasts are, are really really just that they should all be taken with with a, with a pinch of salt is there one particular number that you can recall that you've gone what I, I think to, to give a taste of things, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand has come out with some interesting numbers. It's expecting a 37% drop-off in GDP uh, during the Level 4 lockdown. That's that's what they think we experienced in New Zealand. Uh, a 19% drop-off of, you know, of economic activity in Level 3. They're forecasting an 8.8% drop in Level 2. And then still at a 3.8% drop in even as we go down to level one so those consequences are sort of going down but continuing um most economists i think are predicting unemployment to rise to something like 10 percent uh, uh by the end of june before dropping perhaps to around sort of seven percent by the end of the year and f- but clearly unemployment for the next few years is, is going to be quite quite a lot higher than it has than we've been enjoying in the past few years as those sort of key sectors tourism industry retail uh and, and, and confidence in, in, in overseas markets as we take time to recover from that. There's a lot of disagreement, isn't there, about the best strategy for New Zealand and for the rest of the world uh, for climbing back out of the slowdown or recession or, or depression, depending on how bad it gets, that's coming. So is it possible to summarise some of the most popular ideas out there for how to fix things, basically? Yeah, I, I think I, I think that there are lots of things that people do agree on as well. But uh, one of the questions that, that I think the government will be getting to grips with now is the extent and speed with which we might need to look beyond the sort of response stage, I guess, of the crisis, trying trying to help from sort of bridge the gap and survive, keep people employed in the hope that you know things will pick up in the short term. So through to thinking about the, those longer term implications, and and I think you know we're going to hear a lot more from Finance Minister Grant Robertson about you know recovery and, and rebuild. He's used those two separate terms to to start to switch the focus of the more forward thinking things that that we will do. To, to get out of this hole. There are some people who think that we do need to have some sort of um, general stimulus to stimulate consumer demand at the moment. But there's this talk about helicopter money, which is essentially just the government creating money and giving that to people to spend. Or tax cuts, for example. I, I think that's a sort of a niche view, really, on the whole at the moment, that it's the right time for those sort of policies. This crisis isn't really a... Yeah, primarily a crisis of consumer confidence. It's a it, it's a production gap really that's going to lead to structural changes in the economy, as certain types of spending just can't really happen anymore. 
So the, the budget is just around the corner, and usually that's a process that, that takes a lot of time. There's there's a lot of uh, negotiation goes on between ministers and, and, and the finance minister, but I imagine a lot of work had to be thrown out once we got into this phase. So how will Grant Robinson be approaching this budget, and, and what will he be hoping to achieve As you say, there were plans for a pre-election budget that would have seen perhaps about $3 billion in new operational spending on initiatives such as skills in education, mental health, perhaps sort of child poverty. And we might see some of those initiatives survive and be repurposed, if you like, around the coronavirus uh, efforts. So we might still see that skills in education spending happening, that spending on mental health happening, but it might be put more in a context or around something that's designed to alleviate some of the problems caused by the coronavirus crisis. The the Prime Minister has talked about her concern about intergenerational equity. What does she mean by that and, and what could it mean for the budget? Uh, there have been some suggestions that perhaps the government might take a fresh look at superannuation, give, given the spending commitments it's going to have to make in other areas, perhaps look at increasing the qualifying age for superannuation or, or some form of means testing. I have to say that looks a, a little bit unlikely from a sort of political perspective, especially in the coalition with New Zealand First, in, unless you're being really cynical and thinking perhaps the government might raise those as possibilities just to uh, give New Zealand First as a co- Coalition partner, a bit of a boost ahead of the election, but I think you'd have to be quite, quite cynical to think that was what was going on. I think it may be paving the way for some tax changes in, in the budgets. It wouldn't surprise me if, if the government changed the structure of income tax, perhaps without actually increasing the, the total amount of the tax take. That would, I guess, have a bit of an intergenerational um, impact in terms of making younger people who are already on in their careers a bit better off and, and people who have had longer careers and are perhaps at the peak of their earning capacity, they might take a little bit of a hit. There might be a view, perhaps that's fair for the sacrifices that you know younger generations have made during these lockdown stages. Just a final question. Lockdown for, for some of us has meant trying new recipes. There's a lot of banana bread going on. Uh, for others, it's been returning to old hobbies. Now, I learned from Google that you used to play the bass back when you were at Oxford, and I believe the, ba- the band was called Naked Charm. So have you been using your lockdown hours productively to rock out a few scales or similar? I have to confess, I did get out my bass guitar once and I tried, I suppose you might call it jamming with my, my niece from Germany who's over here on a working holiday. She played, plays the guitar very well. I, I think she was very polite, but the, the session only lasted probably about 90 seconds. I think, before she <laughs> so we, we, we settled instead on playing a lot of table tennis here and, um, and I've been a little bit more successful at that, though, though not, not, not the winner. That sounds very fruitful use of your time in lockdown. Tom Polistrecker, thank you very much. Thank you. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Thursday the 7th of May. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Martin Van Bainen, Tom Polistrecker, Alex Liu, Catherine George, John Hartfeld, Carol Hirschfeld. Oh, and the Lorenzen family's isolation joke station. Thanks too for joining us. If you want to listen to more episodes, you can find them on all the podcast apps and the Stuff website. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Also, if you want to support Stuff's journalism, the company's recently set up a system where you can make financial contributions via a link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. Have Joe.